So this morning I'm going to look at the practice of, um, of this questioning. Not so much focusing on the questioning itself, which we have explored both with Martine and myself in some detail, but to reflect on what kind of um, inner environment, as it were, uh, supports or contextualizes uh, this practice of inquiry. Last night um, we looked at how this questioning has um, implicit within it a quality of not knowing. And this helps us, I think, to perhaps become less uh, exclusively preoccupied with what is this? And it may be that um, at times it feels that that just becomes a rather narrow beam of attention and inquiry uh, in which we kind of perhaps even get a little bit tense and tight and uh, um, uh, almost limited, I think. But to recall the, to ask what is this or to experience this this sensation of puzzlement or perplexity implies um, an acknowledgement that we don't know what this is. And it may be helpful in fact during uh, the sitting or the walking or the eating or the doing whatever you do, periodically just to stop and acknowledge, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I don't know who I am. I don't know what this is. And just as we seek to somehow settle in the, uh, in the felt sense of curiosity, perplexity, puzzlement, wonder, we can also allow ourselves to, to settle into the felt sense of, I don't know. It's one thing to say, I don't know. It's another thing to actually begin to uh, explore where that quality of not knowing resonates in the body itself. It's got a peculiar flavour, a peculiar taste. And I think that uh, this is very much to do with cultivating a a contemplative or a meditative sensibility is to go beyond the the formal exercise itself, asking a particular question or placing one's attention on the breath or the sensations in the body or whatever it might be, letting go of uh, of the formal element, the formal practice, and allowing ourselves just to spend time um, familiarizing ourselves or getting somehow feeling at home in the, uh, the, 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 the felt qualities that are induced or are invoked by these formal Uh, exercises and practices so that in a sense what we're moving towards is not 
a sort of expertise or proficiency in doing a particular exercise. And often along with that comes a certain expectation of a certain result. But rather to let go of all of that and to feel at ease and to feel at home uh, in a felt sensibility a sensibility of puzzlement perhaps, of wonder, and at the same time a sensibility of, of not knowing. A kind of an, an, an openness that does not uh, foreclose or preclude um, by um, you know, imposing our, our certainties and our views and our opinions on whatever is going on. And another way we can look at this um, is in terms of the what we might call the, the sort of the internal posture that we assume when we sit or walk. When we sit in meditation, um, again we may not be entirely conscious of this, but we assume a kind of stance towards our experience. And the language of meditation often um, uh, subtly, or maybe less subtly, uh, suggests what this stance is like. And I would, uh, I would speculate that um, much of the language of meditation um, implies the stance of a person who is looking at something with their eyes. And in fact, this is quite explicit in uh, the word vipassana. Pasana, or pasati in Pali, means to see. It's the ordinary word for looking. And vipassana, v intensifies it. It's a kind of an intense looking. And, um, for example, we don't find it strange when uh, uh, we're hearing a meditation instruction and the teacher says... Uh, observe your breath. Watch what comes up in your mind. Observe, watch. These are ocular metaphors. In other words, the, the suggestion is that when we meditate, we do something akin to what we do when we look at something, when we watch something, when we observe something. But because this is so familiar and is so ingrained in much of our metaphorical discourse about mental operations, we don't notice. But if, for example, instead of saying, watch your breath, which sounds perfectly obvious what that means, if the teacher were to say, hear your breath, listen to your breath, the chances are we would <clears throat> think that what is meant <clears throat> is that we listen to the noises that the breath makes. Whereas when we say watch the breath, we don't think, oh, what does the breath look like? What shape does it have? What colour does it have? You see what I mean? There's, we utilise metaphors, looking, seeing, observing, um, but we fail to recognise that they're metaphors. Yet what I think is, um, is interesting here is that when we assume a kind of ocular stance, 
um, we set up within us a kind of ocular perspective. In other words, we might have a sense that when we're meditating, we're like a little person sitting on our shoulders or on the back of our head, or sometimes a little bit behind the back of our head, who's kind of peering in on what's happening. Watch the breath, and we immediately feel that we're somehow a detached observer looking at the breath. And implicit in this uh, metaphor is the idea of a certain uh, separation. The observer and the observed. Um, And that suggests a certain distance. It also suggests very often, although not always, a, a kind of narrowing of the attention to a particular point as though we're kind of honing in on something. So we take the object of meditation, be it the breath, be it uh, the nature of the mind, be it even the question, we take it as something that we we hone in on from a distance and try to sort of pin down. What I'm going to suggest today is that we um, adopt a different inner stance we adopt, we adopt the stance of someone listening or hearing. And what we might discover is that this um, opens up a, a very different um, uh, internal posture, as it were. So first of all, let's just look at what... You see, look. <laughs> first of all, let's, let's consider what it's like uh, to listen to something or to hear something. I'm not going to make much of a differentiation between those two words. Imagine that you are listening to a a favourite piece of music. Now what what, what you do in order to to listen to it really well, maybe you're at a concert, maybe you're at home with your stereo on, maybe you're jogging with your your iPod in your pocket, whatever it might be. When you listen to something, um, you often uh, close your eyes. If you really want to focus on the sound, you close your eyes. When you listen to something, you totally open your attention 360 degrees. Uh, And in fact, it, it, it interrupts the focus of listening to become, say, preoccupied with Um, one particular line of the melody or one particular instrument in the orchestra. We don't want to hone in on one point. That actually breaks the overall uh, experience of uh, enjoying and appreciating and hearing the music. In other words, listening is almost the opposite to looking in that rather than focusing our attention on a particular point outside of ourselves, we open ourselves in order to allow the totality of the sound to focus in on us. So it goes in the opposite direction. As a way of getting a a feel for this um, in, uh, in, in this retreat, I suggest that you might spend a certain amount of time 
just listening to what sounds are going on in any given moment. And so to, to just open your attention, open your awareness to the polyphony of nature, the polyphony of the birds and the noises in the trees, uh, or people making noises outside, or cars going by. At the same time, being aware of the noises in this room. Although we sit very still, we're very quiet, nonetheless, occasionally someone shuffles or sneezes. Uh, occasionally there's a, a noise, a door opening. And also, we become aware that there is a peculiar kind of ambient hush in this room. Something very difficult to pin down, but quite distinctive. When we sit here, the room, even when nobody's making any noise, has a kind of a soft, kind of echoey hush. And if we open our ears even more, we might notice that there are strange kind of high-pitched uh, whines and whistles going on in our head. Sit quietly now, I can hear a very, very high pitched kind of whine in my ears. And to become more aware, more attentive to sound, um, requires that we allow a, a greater sort of silence within ourselves and a kind of openness uh, an attentiveness a bit like I think imagistically say of a deer when you see a deer in the forest uh, it's amazing the way the, the deers apparently are almost blind but their ears are hyper tuned and sometimes when you see a deer they look at you with a kind of a myopic squint. <laughs> and yet their ears are sort of going... Mm -hmm. are picking up everything. And I think the sense of smell, too, is incredibly alert. Uh, it's a bit like that. It's an attuning of yourself to um, the, the, the totality of the world's music, if you want. Um, this was noticed by the um, American composer John Cage who wrote a piece of music called Four Minutes and 33 Seconds. Um, it's, it's, it's scored for piano, but it can actually be played by any instrument, or none, because nothing actually happens. The pianist goes onto the stage, sits bound by the piano, everybody goes quiet, and then the pianist doesn't actually play anything. Um, I heard a performance of this in Totnes in the Kingsbridge Arms some years ago on Penny Whistle. <laughs> but again, you might laugh at this and say, oh, this is sort of silly avant-garde nonsense. But what's the actual experience of it is quite, is quite amazing, particularly the first time. Because you go into the concert hall <clears throat> um, expecting to hear music. So you prime yourself, you, you or, or, or probably unconsciously, you, 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 prepare, you prepare yourself for uh, an experience of music. And when no actual 
notes from a piano or penny whistle occur, you, you become acutely aware of all the ambient noise. And this, I think, was Cage's point. Namely, that we privilege certain kinds of noise as music, but we ignore the extraordinary polyphony that's going on around us all the time. Now, maybe he picked this idea up from Zen. It's possible uh, he was a sort of Zen Buddhist. But nonetheless, um, I find it a very good example of um, what we're uh, doing here, uh, particularly when we start paying attention to sound. It's as though every 35-minute sitting here uh, is a kind of um, a composition, a piece of music. To listen to it as though it were, let's say. That's one side of what I'm suggesting we do today. The other side um, is to notice not just the sounds and the polyphony, but to notice the kind of inner posture we assume when we listen. And, and that can have a very different feel, a very different felt sense to the more familiar one of uh, behaving as though we were looking at something or looking for something, perhaps. So if we spend a little bit of time just opening our attention to the sounds around us and just being with them, not analysing them and perhaps noticing how the mind very easily gets drawn to a particular one if it's maybe rather loud or different but trying not to get hooked into any particular sound but just being open to the totality of the noises around us and then noticing what it feels like both uh, as a listener and also as an embodied listener, what it feels like bodily uh, to be open to the world in that way. And the way that this translates into uh, the practice of, of, of the Hwadu, the practice of what is this, is providing, as it were, a kind of a, an inner acoustic environment to hear whatever response might emerge to the question that's been posed. So we ask, maybe sotto voce, or maybe just as a kind of inner perplexity, you know, what is this? And as the words fade, we just listen. We just allow ourselves to be open without any expectation, without any agenda to the silence that is opened up in the wake of what is this? What is this? And then just listening. Not looking for something. Just being as open as you would um, to uh, whatever happens as you would to... Um, the sounds of the world, as it were. Now another dimension of this listening, and I think this is particularly marked in the, uh, in the Chinese traditions, is that listening um, is also 
suggestive of a kind of openness which is an empathy. You're probably aware that in India, you or in Tibet, uh, you have the Bodhisattva uh, of compassion who's called Avalokiteshvara. In Tibetan, they translated that as Jenrezik. Jenrezik. Chenrezik. And what Jenrezik means, literally, Chen means eyes, Re means downwards, and Zik means looking. The one whose eyes are cast down, literally. What happened in China? is that this uh, male figure of Avalokiteshvara uh, was transmuted, and we don't know the process as to why this happened, into a female figure. When you go into the, um, the foyer where there's the notice board out there, and there's a, there's a scroll painting on the wall, a bit faded now, that is an image of Guanyin, the female transformation of the Bodhisattva of compassion. And you find this image everywhere in China. It's an enormously well-known form. In fact, culturally, it functions more or less like the image of the Virgin in Catholic countries. But Guanyin, um, the woman, the female Bodhisattva, the word Guanyin means the one who is aware of sound. The complete opposite of the Tibetan whose eyes are cast down. Uh, there's been not only a shift in gender, but a shift in the metaphor, um, uh, or in the very name itself, from looking to listening. And Guanyin is the one who uh, attends to the sounds uh, of the world. And this is usually understood as the one who hears uh, the cries of the world, the suffering of the world. Uh, hence the association with empathy, with compassion. So the kind of openness that uh, comes with listening is also an empathetic openness. It's an openness to hear uh, the cries of suffering, uh, the pain of others, uh, to allow oneself to be sufficiently open, perhaps sufficiently uh, vulnerable, that one um, is, is able uh, to be sensitive, uh, to be attentive, uh, to be willing uh, to listen to the you know, the, the cries of those who are in pain. And again, that doesn't need to be taken literally as people, you know, wailing and screaming. But as a metaphor uh, for being open to the plea or the longing, uh, the strife of others. So this metaphor of listening, when we tease it out of um, goes further than just uh, hearing sounds. It implies another way of uh, comporting or, or, or carrying oneself um, with regard to how one is relating to things. And that openness, that comportment, uh, 
begins to break down resistance or hesitation in being able to hear uh, uh, the suffering of others. So when we say, what is this? Uh, it's not just a kind of uh, contemplative or philosophical inquiry that hopefully one day will lead us to the truth of the nature of reality or something. But it's rather more uh, a willingness to be responsive uh, to um, the world as such in all of its um, emotional in all of its uh, 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 felt uh, qualities and finally which I, some, which I think somehow fits quite naturally into what we've been sketching this morning uh, which we, we've spoken so far of an unknowing, a listening, uh, an empathy, but also a quality of um, waiting, of, of being, being able just to wait without expectation. This goes back to a question that we had last night about uh, memories we might carry from childhood, Memories we might carry from experience we've, we've had on other retreats or experiences, mystical type experiences that have been very important to us in our, our own story of what's brought us here. Uh, moments that are clearly of great value to us and things I feel we really need to honour. But at the same time, uh, they, there is a problematic subtext which the questioner alluded to. Namely, that although we may not admit it to ourselves, there's often a kind of hidden agenda in our practice whereby that, you know, although we're trying to be fully present in this moment and so forth and so on, uh, there's a part of us that is, is yearning to repeat an experience we had in the past. And I think this is something that really gets in the way <clears throat> of this kind of practice. Um, because there's probably a bit of us that's not really willing to embrace the unknown um, and unpredictable that we are opening ourselves to, but wants to, d to define that or wants to enable that meditative environment to become uh, a place where we can get that experience again. Not only is memory an eminently fallible thing, in other words, our memory is probably already highly edited, whatever it was we experienced in the past, um, but at the same time, um, it somehow limits uh, what it is that is possible in such a moment as this, as when we're sitting and when we're walking or when we're just getting through life. So when you catch yourself playing that loop tape uh, or recalling that memory, just again, not trying to sort of suppress it or deny it, but just acknowledging that that's going on. And it's in the acknowledging of it rather than the suppressing of it that we can perhaps free ourselves 
from its agenda. So it might be helpful also when we're sitting um, to listen and to wait, but to wait without expectation. In English, um, we kind of have lost uh, the, uh, the, the proximity between waiting and expecting. Um, uh, how does it go in German? I think in German you say warten und erwarten. Nicht? Uh, erwarten is to expect and warten is to wait. In French you say attendre and s'attendre, strictly speaking. Um, the words are very closely allied. Uh, in fact, in, in, in older English you would say to wait and await. But we don't, we don't use that anymore. But the point is that these two qualities are very similar in that they are, as it were, a sort of prospective uh, sense of what's possible. But one is just open to whatever might occur and the other already has a wish or a longing that something occurs, something that I kind of want occurs. So there's an element in expectation that is uh, a kind of desire. A desire that's predicated on the past. Whereas in simply waiting, without expectation, we're open to whatever may happen. We're in a sense still um, uh, prospectively attending, as it were, um, but without the agenda. And I think this is quite difficult because it's simply part of human experience, I think, to, uh, to project our life into the future, to make plans, to organise what is to come, uh, to uh, secure ourselves uh, in terms of the future that is unknown. So it's a quite natural thing. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with it. In fact, it's probably rather important, actually. But in this particular kind of practice, we try to first notice that, that tendency. And when we do notice it, just to allow it the space to be, and thereby somehow uh, prevent it from getting in the way. And as with not knowing, as with listening, what perhaps is most important is to um, try to uh, differentiate in your own uh, bodily experience what it feels like to wait, as opposed to what it feels like to expect. How does that feel inside your, your body, in a felt sense? So at times you might find that helpful too, particularly if expectations do pop up, to be alert to what that feels like, as opposed to asking this question, not knowing, acknowledging that, listening and waiting in a kind of silent, still, open space. Okay, so three things. I mean, maybe it's too complicated to, to, you know, to sort of focus on all of them, but maybe one or two of them you might find useful. Not knowing, listening, 
waiting. Okay? Is there anything practical? Yes? Do you think it's possible to explore this in a posture of of openness, of waiting, of compassion, by listening to listening to the body, listening to the, the sensations of the body as they <coughs> fit rather than sound? Yeah, I don't think it matters. Uh, yeah, I, well, again, I think, you see, the sensations in the body are silent, right? At least mine are. Do you all sort of have some sort of tune running along? <laughs> um, well, there's two things. There's the first of all, listening to sounds, I think does have, uh, it's, I, I find very helpful because it takes our mind out. It extends our attention to the totality of what's going on. But at the same time, to notice what it's like to be listening. And once you get a feel for what it's like to use listening rather than looking as the main metaphor, then you can apply such an attention to the sensations of your body, the breath, thoughts in your mind. It it could be anything, really. It doesn't matter. And that's probably the more important element in the end. Uh, at least that's what I would, uh, what I have found, is to cultivate that inner stance of a listener rather than a looker. Okay, let's give it a go. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.